from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Okay, Monty Hillis really lost her ass, didn't she? I told her not to eat that stuff before breakfast. Hey, by the way, if you're planning on visiting Washington State on vacation this year, don't bother because Washington is on its way to visit you this year. Time can do funny things. Sometimes it moves like molasses. Other times it's ridiculously sped up like a Charlie Chaplin movie. These moments can come back to back. Maybe you're at a restaurant with your girlfriend and a glass falls off the table, seemingly frozen in the air before it crashes to the floor. Then the next moment, your loved or ex-loved one tells you that, yes, it is over. For good. Suddenly, the waiting staff is zipping around you like bees as your brain processes the news at a glacial pace. It's over? Our experience of time changes all the, well, time. We just don't notice very often. But it isn't just our personal experience of time that changes. Historically, cultures have experienced time very differently from one another. We experience a day very differently from the way our great-grandparents did. Our days are even longer than the days before electric lights. In every part of the world, time is experienced differently. A day for someone in Sudan, Peru, or Japan is very different than a day is for most Americans. And particular phases of time, childhood, adulthood, middle age, old age, are understood and felt in completely different ways, depending on where or when we are. The idea of childhood, for example, this time of protected innocence and carefree play, didn't even really exist as a separate time of our life until about 200 years ago. Until then, children were just, well, miniature adults, and they grew up fast. As we evolve and cultures change, we invent not only new experiences, but also new experiences of time to go with them. Bob Dylan, it seems, was even more on the mark than we realized. From KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week, we bring you an hour of stories that explore a single question or theme. Stories of every kind. Documentaries, fiction, memoir, academic sleuthing, and even ballads. All written and produced by Stanford students, fellows, and faculty. This week, we will look at the different ways we experience the time of our lives. We start by looking at how two times of our lives, adolescence and old age, have changed radically in just the last 100 years or so. In our first story, Those Were the Days, Aaron Zaraga and Hannah Mitchelson look at the invention of nostalgia, the yearning for another time, and explore how nostalgia has become a way to cope with our modern experience of dislocation and rapid change. In our second story, Living with Dying, Rachel Dowling, Daniel McDougall, and Tom Wiltsius interview families about how one particular kind of time, the time of grieving, has been radically changed by advances of medicine. In our final piece today, we'll hear the story of how two people decided to make the time of their lives, their own personal lives, synchronized with the times of our lives, the major historical events and changes of our time. In their story, Into the Blast, Nadja Blagjevich, Kristen Gans, and Sam Tanzer return to the eruption of Mount St. Helens and follow two people who decided to make the event the time of their lives. Stay with us. Our first story, brought to us by Aaron Zaraga and Hannah Mitchelson, explores the evolution of nostalgia and how it has become an essential time of our lives. Aaron and Hannah begin their story in a time-honored way by eavesdropping. Hey, 
changing Have you ever been in a conversation with a group of people and had someone bring up an aspect of their childhood? Others in the group will also chime in with memories from their past, sending the whole group down memory lane. What implications do experiences like this have on the way we interact with our world? In the following essay, Aaron Zaraga and Hannah Michelson explore the evolution of nostalgia and how it has become an essential part of the way we live our lives. I feel like we're eavesdropping here. Don't worry about it. They don't even notice the microphone. Just let them talk. What about grammar because it had all the catchy songs? We're sitting here in a dining hall on the Stanford campus. It's a Saturday night. Everyone is stuffing themselves with food before a long night of studying. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly we're traveling back in time, almost instantaneously. I remember learning about my culture from Rugrats. My favorite Rugrats episode is where Edie actually has a job and she like, Chucky smelled like a skunk and had to bathe in the borscht. Remember, because her grandparents were like Russian. They're talking about Rugrats, the show that aired on Nickelodeon when we were kids. Oh man, I definitely remember watching that on Saturday morning. That was actually pretty good. The Green Dragon thing and then the White Tiger. I had a crush on the Pikmin. I know, me too. Anyone else? No, no, no. Yeah, I remember that. I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch Power Rangers all the time. The red one was definitely my favorite. I was definitely a yellow Power Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, Hannah, but when I get together with my friends, we start talking about stuff from when we were kids. People chime in and everything just starts to snowball. We can talk about stuff like that for hours at a time, and it's not even an experience specific to our generation. Every generation reminisces about different elements of their childhoods. I always hear my grandpa talking about the good old days. <laughs> People of different ages have different memories, but they're all nostalgic for the past in some way. But there's something more here than simply remembering the past with fondness. These memories and the process of accessing them must mean something to us. The group seems to come together as a unit and a bond forms between everyone over a simple shared memory. Is it natural for us to act like this? or something prompting us to explore the past with each other. I used to have a, a friend, a playmate, um, who lived in Florence, Italy. Amy Friedman is a resident fellow in a dorm on the Stanford campus. We decided to start delving deeper into this concept of nostalgia by interviewing someone with first-hand experience. Amy's seen countless numbers of students develop and grow into adults, and witnessed how they remember the childhoods they've left behind. She's also an adult herself and has two young children, so she's had exposure to different generations and how they remember the past. I walked down the hall to her apartment and she invited me in to sit down in her living room. I couldn't help but notice the school portrait sitting next to wedding photos, creating a timeline of Amy's own development. We used to go to her uh, house and we would run all around. There were just big meadows with um, flowers and they had pine trees and we would shake the pine cones out and get the pine nuts from the pine cones and we would ju we were just completely free to roam around and not worry that something would happen to us and not have our parents say you know where are you at every moment <laughs> mm -hmm. and and just be completely in make-believe land. Miss Friedman what do you think nostalgia is about? It's a type of memory, but it's specifically something that has sort of a poignancy to it and 
something, well, usually I think of it as something fondly remembered that might be idealized somewhat and isn't, isn't readily available now. Idealized, yeah, that makes sense. I definitely tend to favor the positive parts of my childhood when I reflect back on my past. Everything couldn't have been that great, but it sure feels like it was. <laughs> yeah, I agree. There is a tendency to romanticize somewhat what the past was and to, to forget some of the bad aspects of this idyllic, <laughs> whatever mm. it is, situation or experience or something like that because, because it's more convenient. I think people do tend to remember things in more um, black and white rather than gray kinds of um, ways. Either they were all bad or all good, but not as often that you remember sort of the, the in-between. This is a common way of thinking about nostalgia, but why would we remember our past this way? It's this loss of innocence type of thing. It makes me feel, well, there's a, there's a sense of sadness and a sense of loss and a sense of, um, as well as a kind of a longing to go back to that kind of era, not just for myself, but just for my kids as well. But you know, the, the close friendships, the sort of innocent giggling and laughing and all that stuff. And the, even, even sort of sensory things of, of having the wind and the rain and we would play all the time outside. It didn't, didn't really matter. And I just think that people are much less interested in having those experiences. So yeah. really sort of feel a loss. It's interesting that Amy brings up this sense of loss because it actually harkens back to the original connotation of the word nostalgia. It literally means a painful yearning to return home. Johannes Hofer, a Swiss physician in the 17th century, lived in a time when modern forms of communication weren't available to soldiers fighting in far-off lands. He saw countless numbers of fighters come through his door, wasting away as a result of intense homesickness. He coined the term nostalgia to describe this phenomenon. A far cry from fondly remembering running around with friends on the playground. Oh yeah, Hofer actually referred to this nostalgia as a disease. But as the definition of home morphed with the industrialization of the Western world, the meaning of nostalgia morphed along with it. Home was no longer as fixed in time and space as it used to be because people could move around, so memories of the past were no longer connected to a specific geographical location. Nostalgia now referred to remembrances of the past in general, not simply homesickness, and it was no longer considered a medical affliction. We don't see nostalgia as something negative anymore. Society actually celebrates it. Take VH1, for example. They've created a whole series of shows based solely on taping people's responses to seeing toys, movies, and TV shows from past decades. But these shows demonstrate how we don't really take it seriously either. It must mean more than fondly reminiscing, though, if we do it so often with other people. Amy pointed out that we romanticize everything from our past because we've lost something. Maybe remembering the past with others lets us deal with this loss. Okay, this group recollection thing is interesting. We were all children once, so we all have our own memories, but sometimes we bring them together in a group context and create almost an entirely new entity of experience. The individual past almost becomes a group past. 
Amy talked about this when I asked her about group nostalgia. I think people sort of um, tune into the parts of a memory that had the most effect on them. And so you could have a bunch of people in the room experiencing the same thing, but you know, I may be drawn to one aspect and they might be drawn to another aspect. And then when you get together, it could almost seem like a different event. This collective interpretation of the past helps us connect with others and form relationships in group settings. We establish a group member identity by sharing our own thoughts and feelings about the past with others. It really links people together. It ties you together. I mean, it's, it's a common bond, for one thing. And, um, and again, if it's something remembered fondly, then it's a way to re-experience it. And even if it's not, it's a way to re-experience it and maybe um, kind of metabolize it in a way. Metabolizing, yeah, that's an interesting way to describe a memory. It's like we need to re-examine the past because we missed it the first time. It takes a while to process and digest these experiences we have, and we like to do it with other people. It's not really processing per se, but re-evaluating a specific time in our lives and remembering the last time we remembered it, not the memory itself. Wait, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I talked to Christopher Knoxon, the author of the book Rejuvenile. I'll let him explain this aspect of nostalgia because I obviously had trouble with it. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> You know, memory is, is not so much about digging back to the original experience as it is kind of sorting through the, the files of the last time we made that recall. So it's all mixed up in our interpretation. Knoxon's book explores the belief that adults should have the choice to integrate elements of their childhood into their mature lives. He's done a lot of research on how adults interact with their memories from the past. Childhood memories that you have now become that because you keep remembering them over the years and they keep changing based on your circumstances in the present. That's why remembering our childhoods and groups is so satisfying. A positive experience from our past will keep getting better and better the more we remember it. The group dynamic adds excitement and energy to the memory and this sticks with the recollection every time we access it. So in a way, recalling those happy times in our lives almost serves as a way to cope with our rapidly changing lives. Could this be the real reason we remember our childhoods? Taking the things not worth having But don't you worry about a thing Don't you worry about a thing, mama Cause I'll be standing on the side when you check the transition to being an adult is pretty stressful. You have to start worrying about car payments, layoffs, parenthood, romantic relationships. I could go on and on. We definitely experience a big change when we become grown-ups. Our memories of childhood help us out though. We like to have something solid from a past that we can understand and appreciate. We can choose to remember certain things with fondness because it gives us perspective on our existence and reminds us of where we came from. We're also creatures of continuity. We like things to stay relatively the same. The jump from being a kid to being an adult these days is an especially jarring one. We can fix this loss of continuity between these two periods of our lives by bringing to the surface memories of childhood, when everything was much simpler and we didn't have to worry about the responsibilities of adulthood. Nostalgic memories represent a past that we can look upon with fondness, but one that we secretly wish to return to as the world around us brings more and more challenges to our doorsteps. Our lives couldn't have always been this hectic though. We've only had cell phones, cars, and the internet for a few decades. At what point did we start to use memories of the past to help us deal with our fast-paced lives? Second hand.
here's Noxon again. I was astonished to discover when I started doing research is that, uh, you know, the idea of childhood is a relatively new one. Um, that I always had thought of this as sort of a natural human fact, but uh, the kind of cultural and, and uh, parental appreciation of childhood as a special, protected, innocent time only really took form in the, you know, 18th century around the time of the industrial age. So adulthood and childhood didn't used to be all that different. A divide has opened up between these two stages of development since the 18th century. Kids were viewed as kind of miniature adults. The whole idea of, of childhood was you, you get them get them civilized as quickly as you can. You know, the idea of, of child children as being this kind of the this fiercely protected, innocent, special people was really they couldn't afford that kind of luxury. Now that childhood is so different, the transition to adulthood is a much bigger change than it used to be. Yeah, I'm still trying to make that transition. I see myself where I'm supposed to be in four years, and I see myself where I am now. But it's really difficult to imagine how I'm going to get there. Since being a kid and being an adult were such similar experiences in the past, people didn't used to be able to see a big jump between their present and future selves. Changes in our lives happen much faster now, and they're much more dramatic. We're so much more fluid. We're so much more complicated and so much more conflicted. And, you know, our, even our memory is a, is a product of who we are at present. We remember what we remember because it closes the gap that is opened up between being a kid and being a grown-up. We've lost the continuity that we're always searching for. Nostalgic memories are kind of like a lasso that we use to pull our childhoods closer to us, inch by inch, until we feel like we can connect our present with our past. We can define who we are as adults in the context of who we were as kids. And I'll So what we've come to find is that nostalgia helps us connect the dots on our timeline of development and to get a clear sense of who we are. But from what Amy said, nostalgia is a reflection of what we've lost. Exactly. We've lost the continuity between childhood and adulthood because time just moves too fast in the modern world. Well, that makes sense on an individual level, but we've also found that nostalgia is a much different experience in groups. Yeah, from what we've discovered, group nostalgia ties people together and helps us strengthen social connections. And this is important because home is no longer a fixed location in space for us. Nostalgia helps us figure out where we fit in our social space. When we're remembering previous experiences by ourselves, we're seeking to connect with our past so we can understand who we are at present. Mm -hmm. When we're remembering in groups, we're seeking to connect with other people. As things change more and more rapidly, nostalgia has become essential to ground us in time as individuals and in space as members of society. If rapidly changing time and space is the problem, then nostalgia is our solution. So society may not consider nostalgia a serious concept, but it's the fast-paced nature of our society itself that actually necessitates its use. The stress and disconnect caused by rapid change definitely takes a toll on the way we live our lives. Definitely. But nostalgia helps remedy these ill effects. Nostalgia isn't a disease anymore. It's a cure. There are places I remember Aaron Zaraga and Hannah Mitchelson are sophomores at Stanford. Our second story today looks at how the time before death has become extended. 
prolonged even for years, and wonders, can you finish grieving even before the person dies? In Orthodox Judaism, a death is followed by a period of intense mourning. The immediate family of the deceased go through a week-long shiva, during which they don't bathe, don't shave, and cover every mirror in the house while receiving visitors. Hindu funeral rites include laying the body on the floor and lighting a lamp beside it that is kept burning for three days. Buddhists say funeral prayers weekly for 49 days after a death, at which point the dead are reborn in a new body. Here in the West, we have our own set of mourning rituals, and these rituals are changing as new medical technology prolongs the dying process. These days, dying can be drawn out for a long time. Doctors and modern hospitals can keep a very sick person living, perhaps barely living, for months or even years. And as our sick loved one hangs on, so do we. Perhaps the human process of mourning has adapted to stretch and fill this waiting time. Or maybe our grief simply runs its course, and we accept the approaching death before it actually occurs. I'm Daniel McDougall. And I'm Rachel Dowling. Recently, we've both observed family members' lives slowly slipping away. We interviewed some of our relatives about what this new, longer grieving process is like. My uncle Phil lives in coastal Georgia. Here's how my dad described him before he was diagnosed with renal cancer. He was very robust. He was fairly tall, I guess close to six feet or six one or something like that. He was never slender, but he had a robust build, certainly not overweight. At the time, he had full head of hair, and I believe he had a mustache. He's a fun, impulsive guy. We have to hide pecan balls and chocolates from him to keep his diabetes in check. Oh, but I forgot to tell you his name. It's... What was that? These are two of Phil's children, Janet and Philip. Philip is 21 and Janet's 19. Phil's other two children, Laura and David, are in high school. The four of them live with their parents, attend several church services a week, play with their cat and gerbil, go to the YWCA, and generally keep busy. It was a normal, fast-paced week in spring when Phil's children were told he was in the hospital. Yeah, actually, I was at school, and my brother came to pick us up, and he said, you know, come with us, Dad's in the hospital, and when we got to the hospital room, my dad told us. This is my cousin Laura in May of 2006. She was a sophomore in high school. Her dad, my uncle, had just been diagnosed with stage 3 renal cancer, and initial tests showed that there were metastases in 11 lymph nodes. Tumors were spreading all through his body. I think it was kind of just like shock. Like I couldn't really believe it. You know how my dad used to be, like this big, strong, healthy man. And then he was like laying in this hospital bed saying that he has cancer. Like it's just a big change. Once it became clear that Phil's condition was a terminal illness, his children began something that is referred to in bereavement literature as preemptive grief. A kind of grief that starts even before a death has occurred. In order to better understand types of grief, we consulted the experts and came across Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's influential book, On Death and Dying. In it, she identifies the five stages of grief one normally goes through when one experiences a tragedy. 
denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. The Ross model allows for a range of responses to the passing of a loved one, and though they each reacted differently to their father's degeneration, Janet, Laura, Philip, and David all progressed through the five stages laid out by the Kubler-Ross model. Stage 1. Denial. As the months extended and treatment after treatment failed, Phil's kids still had trouble coming to terms with what they were seeing. They wanted to ignore the disease. They wanted to pretend that it wasn't going to claim their father. It's hard now to go back and access that feeling of bewildered denial, but you can still hear it in Janet's voice. He's not doing that much working right now because he's very uh, under the weather a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, that's about it. But eventually, certain facts become totally unavoidable. And it's at this point that you just want to find someone or something to blame. So this is what they did. Stage two, anger. Why did Grandpa go into remission and my father didn't? I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. That was Phil's oldest son, Philip. When Ross described anger, she meant that the mourning family members radiate anger in all directions. Initially, anger is directed at the diagnosis and the doctors who gave it. But then it can spread to a more general angry questioning. But the anger soon subsides and gives way to the next stage of grief, bargaining. In the third stage, mourners begin to look for hope, to plea for extra time. In my family's case, bargaining included looking for alternative treatments, ways to somehow avoid death. Phil's family certainly did seek out a variety of treatments, almost every kind available. My cousin, Laura. Bouts of chemotherapy, radiation, he's taken countless pills, whatever seems to be out there. He actually did a really extensive, arduous procedure, whatever, that took a month, and he had to be in the hospital for a month and get all his fluids drained and everything. So that was, that was kind of tough, and it didn't work. This past winter, Phil underwent his longest and most arduous round of chemotherapy yet. But as Laura said, the cancer didn't respond. Everything began to look futile. What was the point of trying anymore? Hopelessness became intertwined with regret. This led to stage four, depression. Sometimes I wish I could have spent more time with him. Although I have been involved in the whole process, I haven't been here on a day-to-day basis. So sometimes I feel like I, I should have been there. Philip's sister, Laura. I think maybe I just push it to the back of my mind and try to have other things to do so I don't think about it. And finally, just as Ross's model predicts, after the storm of emotions, mourners eventually reach a state of calm where they come to terms with the facts as they are. This is the fifth and final phase of the grieving process, acceptance. Here's my cousin Janet. I don't think all of a sudden he's just going to die and we're going to be so unprepared or anything. Just because, yeah, we have known for a while. Philip is at the same stage. I asked him what it might be like when his dad's body eventually gives in to cancer. Who really knows what happens to him when he dies? I think for my father, because he's a believer in Christ, I believe that his death will be a passing from this world into a place with God. That his, his death, although it'll painful for us to bear. I think it will unite him with his maker, with God. It will be a, a victory.
victory for him rather than a curse. All of my cousins have come through these stages of grief. They've denied, been upset, bargained, lived through depression, and finally accepted death. So in a sense, they're done. But now what? Phil's children have essentially completed the grieving process and arrived at the acceptance of their father's death. But Phil is still lying in his hospice bed, attended by nurses. The fact is, we cannot explain this new stage of grief with the traditional model. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross doesn't account for how we should treat the time between arriving at stage five and the event of death. As my dad says, we're left with the question, How do I react? What am I supposed to do now? There is no stage six. Maybe we complete the five stages before the moment of death comes. In which case, we've got this new, unnatural space between death's acceptance and actuality. So maybe it's more accurate to say that there is a stage six, but that it's uncharted territory. My cousins found themselves in this situation after less than two years. But for some people, the process can take even longer. Daniel's family experienced a full grieving process, including stage six, over the course of a decade. He reflects on the loss of his grandmother. This is the story of my grandmother, Phyllis. About 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Since that time, my mother and her siblings have progressed through the normal five stages of grief, and like Rachel's cousins, have found themselves unsure of how to feel in this new stage of grieving. I talked to my mom and her brother about it, and asked each of them to describe their mother's life and the experience of slowly losing her to Alzheimer's. Uh, her name was Phyllis Pauline Linsky. She hated her middle name, so we've never used it. This is my mom, Julie. I'm the fourth child, uh, the youngest of four, two older brothers and an older sister, and then came me. <laughs> she never said I was a mistake or an accident, but I'm sure I was a surprise. So that's me, Julie. And this is her older brother. Yeah, this is uh, Ken Van Train. And um, you know, I was the second son to Phyllis and Bill Van Train. You know, the dad was in the Navy, and so he, he traveled a lot. Um, Mom was kind of the, the cornerstone of the family. Uh, we moved every two years, which... A lot of people would think is pretty tough on a family, but she was the one who kept everybody together. She was the cog in our wheel that uh, we all rotated around because she uh, always organized us, always packed, always got us all set up in schools. Each one of us, even though we were all different, all felt that from her. Despite their different relationships with her, Phyllis's children remember some of the same stories. This was in 1998. One of her recipes was chicken fricassee, and, and one day she just forgot how to make it. I remember her visiting me, and uh, we were busy with various things, and I was cooking dinner, and then we sat down to eat. And this is a meal that she cooked all her life, 
and was kind of one of our family favorites. So I thought I would do it for her as like a special thing. Well, I remember sitting down to eat and she'd be like, oh, this is great. Where did you get this recipe? So you knew something was happening. When my grandma went to the doctor in 2001, she took some memory tests and the results confirmed what we already suspected. She had Alzheimer's. Now we didn't wonder why my grandmother had trouble remembering things. Our interactions with her were beginning to change. And in some senses, the way we thought of her was changing too. Five years into the disease, my grandmother fell and broke her hip. This was in 2003. It was a tough decision, but we decided that she wasn't able to get all the care she needed at home. So we moved her into a nursing home called Brighton Gardens, close to where my Uncle Ken lives. Now, Jan and I always went on Sundays. To, in the beginning, we could take her to church, and we did that for about a year and a half on Sunday, and then took her to brunch. Moving her into the nursing home took a lot of the burden off our family, but doing so forced us to confront her approaching death. Perhaps we'd been postponing this realization, but now we were propelled through the five stages of grief and came to accept the fact that she would soon pass away. And then slowly the disease takes over and the progression of her, you know, not remembering us and who we were, our relation to her, starts to go away. And that's always sad. But you were always glad for, like, little glimpses. And I think as more of the memory goes and more of the things, you, you're just happy for the tiny little glance of who she was. So a facial expression or a um, certain word she would say, or if she called you, you know, you know if it was, it was always a big deal if she remembered one of our names, you know, and then we'd call each other and say, hey, she remembered you. <laughs> she remembered you or she remembered my name or, you know, she mentioned everyone but you. Something like that. That's kind of what you ended up doing, was just trying to find a little bit of her each time. And I look forward to going there every week. Um, I, I needed to see her. Alzheimer's claimed more and more of my grandma. Her children still loved her, of course, but as Ken said, she was a different person. Then what got hard is her communication just went. She, she would sit and talk to you as if she was having a conversation, but you couldn't, but the words were um, kind of more gibberish. You couldn't, none of the words made sense. Occasionally, there would be a, a time where what she said connected with what you said. You know, and that, and that was just this great moment that you would have, but it was a tiny little sliver of what normal is, but you were happy for it. In December, she started to have a stroke. Like once a week, she'd start to get a little stroke. This is last December, five years after she moved into the nursing home, Brighton Gardens, and 10 years after she started showing symptoms. Well, at first it was once a year, and then it got to once every few months, and then once a month, and then once every week. So you could, you know, you knew from that pattern that it was getting worse. The last time she had it, she went into complete coma. 
When my grandma went into the coma, her children finally had to accept what was ten years in coming. They had already lost her to Alzheimer's. Soon they would lose her to death. I remember the first time I was, the first day I was there, I was telling her, even though she wasn't conscious, you know, they say that that their hearing is the first, the last thing to go. And so I just told her about how I was doing, how the kids were doing, and, um, you know, and then as, as time went on, you've kind of told them everything, and you just are trying to let them know that it's okay to go. And she lived uh, about eight days after after she was in the coma. So, yeah, at that point, it was... It, we all told her it, it's you know, it's okay to go, and we kind of told her that. Alzheimer's, they call it the long goodbye. Each time I saw her, I grieved a little piece of her that was missing. So it was grieving for eight years. But you could never, eight or ten years, but you could never, I'd never let myself go to a, that point of really being sad because she was still there. And so I would only get, allow myself to kind of get so sad to a certain point. My mom was grieving for her mother, but because my grandma was still alive, she didn't know how to act. I think my mom might have gone through Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, and then found herself in that unexplored sixth stage area. She didn't know what to do. And because she lived farther away, she wasn't able to see her mother as much, and so reacted differently than Ken. You know, I was going down as much as I could and, you know, kind of being, not envious, but feeling bad for um, not being able to be there more. Janice and Ken spent so much more time with her, you know? Mm -hmm. And they would go every weekend. The three of them hung out together. You know, they'd go to lunch and they'd get ice cream. I'm sure it's more final for them because they, they got to see her more than they than I did. So I was missing her all along. You know, they're really missing her because they got to see her all the time. For Ken, things were different. In some families, you know, I mean, in most families, what what happens is that some of the the brothers and sisters are drawn towards the elderly to help them and do what you can for them, <clears throat> and then there's another there's another sister or brother who who goes in the opposite direction and and doesn't spend that time with them. I know I did everything I could at the end for mom. You know, while she was up here, and I, I had my time with her, and I, I'm very content that I was able to, to do that for her. I always miss that I couldn't call her and talk to her, but I feel good because I think she was well cared for, and she was surrounded by people that loved her. I have no regrets with my mom. This is how my mom and her brother reacted to the slow passing of their mother. 
They started and progressed through the first five stages of preemptive grief in similar ways. But because the loss of my grandma was so drawn out, they spent a longer time in the unknown sixth stage of grief. Here, their reactions diverged, perhaps because Ken lived close to my grandma and my mom didn't. Ken saw her every week, determined to spend as much time with his mother as he could before she died. My mom saw her less frequently and was more content to recall who her mother used to be, the mother she saw now only in glimpses. The important thing, however, is that both my mother and uncle are happy with how they spent their last months with their mom. Their reactions defy the rigid definitions given in the five-part Kubler-Ross model. They start to explore what this new sixth stage could be. The fact that Dan's mother and uncle handled their mother's death so differently seems to underscore how strange this new space is between death's acceptance and the moment of death. We might be hardwired to grieve in a particular pattern, like Kubler-Ross says, and we might even be able to handle grieving while our loved one still lives. But there's no way we could be naturally predisposed to grieve for as long as we do now. But we cope. Right, we cope. And we can begin to see what this sixth stage is and how it changes the relationships we have with loved ones, whom we've already grieved but not yet lost. My uncle Phil passed into the Lord's hands a few days after I conducted these interviews. So now the waiting period is over. And in a way, I think Phil's children feel relieved. Finally, after 21 months of battling, struggling, and waiting, they're free to remember what it was like before cancer started colonizing their father's body. They are released to a form of grieving that is constant over all cultures and forms of loss. They tell stories. I was running around and playing flashlight tag and went outside. Um, and I slipped on some wet leaves and split my knee open on the corner of the cement driveway. I went to the emergency room, but I remember my father was there the whole time, holding my hand, and I think I probably gave him a few bruises <laughs> by squeezing his hand so much. I'm very glad to have him with me. Rachel Dowling. Daniel McDougall and Tom Wiltzius are sophomores at Stanford. Our final story explores how some people are drawn to making their lives part of history, making their personal time on the planet part of public, shared time and events, even the public record. Dear God, my God, this is hell. I just can't describe it. It's pitch black. Just pitch black. This is, this is hell on earth I'm walking through. <coughs> One step at a time, if I can just keep walking. You're listening to the voice of TV cameraman David Crockett minutes after the eruption of Mount St. Helens. I never really thought I'd believe this or, or say this, but at this moment, I honest to God believe I'm dead. 
On the morning of May 18, 1980, Crockett found himself retreating to an augmenting dusk of volcanic ash. He was literally trapped in the middle of the largest volcanic eruption the world had seen in 70 years. After nine hours wandering through a suffocating ash cloud, Crockett was finally rescued by government emergency workers. Later, he would require intense medical treatment for the ash deposits that lined his lungs. Crockett had made a conscious choice to be on the mountain that morning. He had woken up at 3 a.m., safe in bed, hundreds of miles away. He had an urgent premonition. Something was going to happen at Mount St. Helens. Crockett got into his car and began driving towards the volcano. In that moment, his experience would become inseparable from the story of the mountain. He didn't stop moving until he was well within the blast zone, less than two miles away from the crater. At 8.32 a.m., Crockett was high up on the mountain in search of the perfect footage. Seconds later, ash had turned dawn to dusk, and he was choking. But Crockett wasn't the only one breathing ash that day. Mount St. Helens erupted at 8.32, and within hours, eastern Washington was blanketed in inches of ash and volcanic soot. Continental winds carried the ash cloud further east, and by evening it had reached Missoula, Montana, more than 400 miles away. Two years later, enough ash would remain in the atmosphere to color the sunsets in California. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens went off with the force of 27,000 atomic bombs. The blast snapped every tree north of the mountain for 17 miles. Boiling mud rushed into the nearby Cowlitz River, forcing the native salmon to jump onto the riverbanks to avoid being cooked. And more than 600 miles away, sonic booms startled city dwellers. But the heat of the blast was so intense that it actually bent the sound waves up into the stratosphere. Anyone within a 60-mile radius of the mountain experienced the eruption in an eerie silence. But events outside of the blast zone took on a very different tone. 315 in the Rose City from Portland's KWJJ. Jeff Davis along with you. Boy, Mount St. Helens really lost her ash, didn't she? I told her not to eat that stuff before breakfast. Hey, by the way, if you're planning on visiting Washington State on vacation this year, don't bother, because Washington is on its way to visit you this year. At the safety of 15 miles, Mount St. Helens seemed like a spectacle, not a tragedy. Sociological surveys, taken in the days after the eruption, characterized onlookers as not scared, but somewhat excited, and very curious. One study concluded that the vast majority of eastern Washington residents found the explosion to be more of a major event than a disaster. All around Mount St. Helens, the excitement of the event inspired creativity. Entrepreneurs flocked to the surrounding towns to sell I Survived Mount St. Helens t-shirts. A particularly clever craftsman collected the fallen ash and fashioned it into commemorative ashtrays. And one local couple even used their own system of volcano warning, their pigs. Hey, 
were squealing the whole time, so I figured they must be extra hungry. When I went out to feed them, Ruby was so excited that she jumped up on top of Wilbur, the male, and over the fence and ran around and around circles around the outside of the fence, and he was squealing the whole time, too. And I had to chase him. Oh, I mean, it must have been an hour. Animals like these pigs are often acutely aware of natural disasters before they occur. In other cases, the discomfort of the livestock might have been the only indication of an impending eruption. The people had been watching Mount St. Helens for months. When earthquakes started shaking the mountain in the late March of 1980, hundreds of scientists and media personnel rushed to document and investigate the extraordinary situation. Within weeks, the mountain was smoking, and magma seeping through the rock had created a huge pressure buildup behind the northern face of the mountain. With each passing day, Mount St. Helens bulged more ominously to the north. While local residents mostly obeyed federal evacuation orders, sightseers swarmed to the national park. In the weeks before the eruption, the airspace around the mountain was so full of private planes that one pilot compared the experience to being in a dogfight. On May 17th, the day before the eruption, geochemist David Johnston was helicoptered to the top of Mount St. Helens. There, he would collect gas samples to improve the scientific understanding of the dangers of the mountain. But before climbing into the chopper, Johnston held an impromptu press conference on the likelihood of an eruption, forever preserving this moment of anticipation. Hours, it could be within days or, or even up to a couple of months. But right now, there's a very great hazard due to the fact that the glacier is breaking up on this side of the volcano, on the north side, and that could produce a very large avalanche hazard. Uh, this is not a good spot to be standing. <laughs> Johnston chose not to return to town that evening. He spent the night at an abandoned observation center, only six miles from the summit. In one of the many ironies of the eruption, Johnston hadn't even been scheduled to work the post that day. He was filling in for a colleague who had to pick up a friend at the airport. Earlier, Johnston had described the volcano as a dynamite keg and warned, the fuse is lit, but you don't know how long the fuse is. If it exploded, we would die. At 26, Johnston was a rising star in the United States Geological Survey and one of the scientists who had been most convinced of the imminent danger of the volcano. But regardless of these convictions, he had spent the past few months in close proximity to the mountain, studying the creation of geological history. When Mount St. Helens erupted in the early hours of the morning, David Johnston was well within the blast zone. At 8.32, history changed. The north side of the mountain collapsed in the largest avalanche ever recorded. But the falling rocks were soon overtaken by scorching 300-mile-an-hour winds that incinerated everything in their path. Despite his predictions, even Johnston was caught off guard. Facing death, he had just enough time to send a final fractured radio transmission. Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. Although the message never reached his colleagues, a lone ham radio operator picked up the signal. According to the operator, 
Johnston sounded more excited than frightened. But whatever his tone, Johnston's fascination with Mount St. Helens had placed him in the heart of the volcanic inferno. David Johnston's obsession with the mountain had lasted only a few short months. Johnston was an outsider, drawn by the anticipation of an eruption. But for some, Mount St. Helens was not a case study, but a home. When the volcano erupted, the only one closer than David Johnston was a man who had been there for 30 years, Harry Trim. For as long as most locals could remember, Truman had owned and operated the Spirit Lake Lodge only five miles north of Mount St. Helens. When the evacuation orders came, Truman refused to obey them. In the month before the eruption, reporters flocked to interview the 80-year-old man who wouldn't leave the mountain, turning Truman into a national symbol of rural obstinacy and frontier mindset. No, I won't leave. I won't leave. They'll have to take me out of here. They'll come get me. They better come get me. They'll get themselves in a goddamn mess. Better be trouble if they come get Truman. If they try to force me to anything, that government better watch out too. I'll go after her. Goddamn right I will. She's a Democrat. Truman soon found himself giving daily interviews, insisting to a growing audience that he was staying put. The media attention and Truman's stubbornness became a vicious cycle. As Truman refused to leave, more reporters came to record his words, and he soon had the weight of national expectations on his shoulders. Truman had made himself a legend, and he couldn't back down. At this place in North my home, I'd die in a week. I, I couldn't live. I couldn't, I couldn't extend it. So I'm like that old captain, and by God, I'm going down the ship. I said, if the damn thing takes this mountain, I'm going along with it. I'd rather be dead. A closer look into Truman's life reveals a more complex man than the one-dimensional figure portrayed by the media. True, Truman's national reputation was on the line, but he was also tied to his land for philosophical and emotional reasons. Like other residents, he described himself as an independent type, distrustful of government intervention and fiercely territorial over his land. According to local legend, he once ran a Supreme Court justice off his grounds until realizing the eminence of his guest. They then became fast friends and fishing buddies. More importantly, Truman's beloved wife, Edie, had died at the lodge only five years earlier. Traumatized by her death, he became increasingly withdrawn, spending his days inside the house she had made a home. Although his sister and children eventually left for safety, Truman chose to stay behind. On May 18th, Truman, his cabin, and all of Spirit Lake were buried under more than 300 feet of volcanic debris. The avalanche turned Spirit Lake into a 150-foot wall of water that crashed back down into the lake bed, the water now 60 feet higher than seconds before. At 8.32, no one was present to record the exact whereabouts of Harry Truman. If he was truly a creature of habit, he might have been sitting on his porch in the morning light, cats wreathed around his ankles. 
A scientist estimated that Truman would have had just enough time to turn his head towards the oncoming disaster before he died. In weeks before the eruption, Harry Truman faced a lose-lose situation. He could stay and risk death, or leave the place that defined his life. A family friend once said Truman was Spirit Lake, and on May 18th, the Spirit Lake that Truman knew and loved disappeared. Truman had known that this was a possibility, and he had made a conscious choice. Much has been said about those who lost their lives in the Mount St. Helens blast. From the day disaster warnings were issued, residents disobeyed them. From the minute federal roadblocks were erected, photographers found ways around them. People were drawn by something more powerful than government warnings, more powerful even than their own good judgment and instinct for self-preservation. At least 63 people lost their lives that day although the exact number remains obscured beneath acres of volcanic rubble. The eruption of Mount St. Helens provided a unique opportunity for ordinary people to make themselves part of an extraordinary story. Whether consciously or otherwise, these people were drawn to something greater than themselves, and they filmed, documented, and disobeyed their way into history. Crockett, Johnston, and Truman literally wrote themselves into the narrative of the mountain. And as long as Mount St. Helens endures, so will they. Nadja Blagojevic, Kirsten Gans, and Sam Tanzer are recent Stanford graduates. We took the name of this week's show, The Time of Your Life, from the title of a terrific Pulitzer Prize-winning play by William Soroyan. It seems fitting to close our show today with a few lines from its very famous prologue. At the opening of the play, a voice rings out. In the time you live, live so that in time, wondrous time, you shall not add to the misery and sorrow of the world, but shall smile to the infinite delight and mystery of it. Today's program was produced by myself, Micah Craddy, and Jonah Willingans. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Aaron Zaraga, Hannah Mitchelson, Rachel Dowling, Daniel McDougall, Tom Wiltsius, Nadja Blagojevic, Kirsten Gans, and Sam Tanzer for their stories. Original music for the show was written and performed by Chris Ayer, Brad Wolf, and Dave Chisholm, whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the Law Offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the the Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week and we'll hear stories about mind control, controlling your thoughts and the thoughts of others. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy.
Find out my money, money, money. 